0: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, October 6th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as Mississippi surpasses two pandemic milestones, we examine the state's response to the coronavirus. Then the lieutenant governor reflects upon an unprecedented first session. Plus, a civil rights icon is celebrated on what would have been her 103rd birthday. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi has surpassed two grim milestones in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Over the weekend, total COVID-19 cases reached the 100,000 mark, while related deaths topped 3,000. After steadily dropping from much of August, the seven-day case average in the state has leveled off recently. And last week, Governor Tate Reeves allowed his executive order carrying the statewide mask mandate to expire. Dr. Claude Brunton is the executive director of the Mississippi State Medical Association. He examines the state of the pandemic in Mississippi with our Michael Guidry.
3: We have seen our numbers of infections stabilize um, and the number of deaths uh, decrease. And that goes a lot to having had a statewide mask mandate. Um, Once we put that into effect, the governor put that into effect, we actually saw um, the result that we were looking for, uh, and we were we were quite pleased at the decrease in the total number of cases uh, that were occurring, the transmission in the community, and then subsequently uh, the decrease in the death rate.
2: Now, anecdotally, you know, we've seen people since the ex- expiration of the mask mandate, seeing more people out and about in in the public without them. What is the level of concern? knowing that, just as you mentioned seatbelt laws, some people just might not do it, uh, no matter what the message from the government, from the state leaders, from medical professionals may be. So what is the risk without having uh, a statewide mass mandate?
3: Uh, the risk goes back up. Um, we know that the, the mandate worked, and we know from looking around the country when there are mandates put in place, Uh, citizens do respond to that. And so that is our concern about lifting the mask mandate, especially now going into the fall. Um, As you say, there will be those folks who will stop wearing their masks, and I think some will erroneously think, well, the high level of risk must be over because we no longer have the mandate. And, And that is certainly not the case. And, in fact, the governor, when he lifted the mask, the mandate still said that he 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 encourages Mississippians to continue to wear their mask, uh, and and we certainly here, um, for the medical profession uh, as the state's physicians, are continuing to strongly encourage Mississippians uh, to wear their mask in in the, in the public.
2: I'd like to kind of pull back and look at big picture. Over the weekend, the state hit two. Milestones: 100,000 cases, 3,000 deaths. Um, in the first 16 weeks of this pandemic, uh, the state had recorded 27,900 cases. In the next 13 weeks, um, nearly 73,000 cases, almost triple that. Considering these these milestones we've reached, um, what is the, the the larger story? What is the full story of COVID-19 in Mississippi? And how do we put the story of Mississippi in perspective as we look to continued mitigation and continued efforts to reduce the transmission of this disease?
3: Well, uh, there's a couple of ways to look at it, I think. Uh, Starting out, um, one of the issues that we had was the availability of testing so that we can actually figure out what is the rate of transmission in the community and how many people are truly infected. And you recall that, Um, since such a large percentage of folks were asymptomatic, they were spreading the virus even though they didn't have any symptoms or know that they had been infected. And without being able to test readily, um, we had no idea about what the transmission rate was. As we got more testing available and we were able to test more people, obviously we found more of those folks who may still be asymptomatic, but they got their test because they were a close contact or something like that, and they turned out to be positive. And so we were being we were able to get a better accounting of, of how many people in the community um, were positive. So we naturally saw an increase um, just by being able to test more folks that were at risk of being positive. And then another way to look at it then is as we were able to test better and we put the mask mandate in place and started telling Mississippians how to prevent becoming positive, we saw that that started tapering off and leveling off the new cases that were going on in the community. Um, And that's where we find ourselves now. So there's a couple of ways to look at it. Being able to test more, and when we started testing more, we did see a a significant increase in the number of confirmed positive. And there's also a high level of transmission in the community. But then as we were able to test and we were able to make Mississippians understand that there is a high level of transmission going on in the community, we need you to practice prevention, and then we saw a stabilization and then the taper ring off. And so um, it's, a, it's a sort of two, two-sided story to that, um, both of which I think led to us stabilizing at a place. Um, but... That's how you saw we started out with a low number and then we saw a bump up to get to a larger number. It's simply because we were able to test more people. And now we've seen a tickering off of that, that, that high, high rate of transmission in the community because the public has learned, um, uh, um, for the most part that we need to be to practice prevention. We need to wear our masks and we got a little bit better control of transmission in the community.
2: Dr. Claude Brunson is the executive director of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Dr. Brunson, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Coming up, the lieutenant governor reflects upon an unprecedented first session. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, portfolio manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. For first term Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, the 2020 legislative session began like many before it, but it was soon interrupted by the coronavirus pandemic, creating arguably the most unorthodox legislative year on record. Hoseman and other legislative leaders had to quickly pivot to the emergency needs of the state in its fight against COVID-19. The Lieutenant Governor reflects on the session, beginning with how lawmakers allocated over a billion dollars in CARES relief.
1: In Mississippi, as of last week, we had paid $3.1 billion in unemployment compensation to Mississippians. And so uh, our our fund, uh, that includes federal and state dollars. Our fund was depleting. We put $181 million in it in June, and we will put another, approximately another $100 million in it here by the end of December.
0: Is that where the bulk of the money has gone, or has it been towards small businesses?
1: No, we allocated $300 million for small businesses, and we added some small businesses yesterday to the list. And in, in addition to that, um, we we allocated $200 million, went to uh, schools. Uh, $150 million of that was to buy iPads for children or Chromebooks, and they bought almost 400,000 of them. And equally as important, we matched uh, dollar for dollar with our electrical cooperatives who really stepped up. Uh, we put up $75 million. They put up an equal amount, and uh, we, uh, we <clears throat> inter- we're we sent providing Internet now uh, to over 50,000 new homes in Mississippi and rural Mississippi that did not have the Internet, and that means tens of thousands of children will now be able to do their homework at night.
0: You appropriated a, a good amount to landlords. Can you explain what that is about?
1: What we did was we we appropriated $20 million for uh, tenants, people who live in in, uh, houses or duplexes or apartments, for that matter, that are rented to them. uh, Landlords will be able to get $700 per month, uh, and for every month that we pay $700, they will forgive one month's rent. So to a total of, of uh, four months we pay in four months, they don't at $700 per month. What that does is give eight months, the eight months since March and April gives us eight months uh, of making sure that tenants will not have a debt on January the 1st. As you know, they, they you could not evict a, a tenant during this period, but the, but the rent continued to run. So January the 1st, they were going to claim back rent for eight months and put these people in the street. And, um, you know, they had the right to do that, whether they would have or not, I don't know. But we are offering offering to pay half of the liability of any tenant to make sure that they can stay in their rental apartment or duplex beginning next year.
0: Now, I I want to go back and look at the session overall first of all it started January 7th like normal and then it stopped (laughs) uh, on March 18th and then started up again you came back in May it has been a contentious session in relationship to the relationship with the governor Um, started with CARES Act money control and a lawsuit and um a big difference of opinion. Did the legislative session get off on a wrong foot with the governor right from the get-go?
1: No. I think the legislature appropriates the money, and the governor expen- spends it. And uh, for the first couple of months, I mean, everybody was working together. When they, when the federal government gave us $1.25 billion to spend, that check was written to the state of Mississippi and had to be appropriated by the legislature. The governor, of course, would have liked to have appropriated the money himself. I guess if our governor and I felt the same, but, but it was clearly a legislative prerogative. So we, we exercised that prerogative. There were, I guess, some rattling of swords in there, but in the end the governor agreed that the money came to the state and the legislature needed to appropriate it, which we did. After that time, you know, on the last on the last four things we did here to help agriculture and veterans affairs, uh, ICU beds for hospitals, um, an epileptic drug for children, those things that we did this last uh, part, um, those I had discussed with the governor last week, told him what we were doing. Uh, he didn't have any <clears throat> any objections to uh, the general. He didn't have the bills, of course, but he didn't have any objections to the general tenant of where the House and the Senate wanted to go, and we proceeded on with the legislation. So, uh, I, you know, we I expect that we'll have a working relationship. Uh, not everybody agrees on anything, but we'll have a working relationship.
0: Well, and there was also the the line item vetoes the governor made in the education budget, which the legislature then overrode. Was that uh, something that everybody came back from?
1: Well, we, our vote over here was 41 to 1. Uh, so I, uh, it was clear the intent of the Senate, and uh, I think the governor knew well what what the intent was. So I don't think anybody um, surprised anybody with either the vote or the position of the Senate on overriding the veto. That said, um, we did 285 bills, I think. And so that was one of them. So it's not even 1% of the total.
0: Were there any bills that had to be overlooked or set aside because of this unusual session that you would have liked to have seen addressed?
1: Yes. And um, we, uh, we clearly started, even during the session, planning for next year. And you will see we have 11 or 12 hearings scheduled. Uh, last two weeks ago, I made an unannounced uh, visit to the Alcohol Beverage uh, Commission's warehouse, walked through it, met with all the people. We've had a lot of complaints about that. We've had hearings on that. We've, we'll have hearings on health care. We've had hearings on insurance. Uh, we'll have hearings on dual credits for credits between uh, colleges and, and high schools. Uh, we'll have uh, hearings on year-round school, which I think is a, a very um, viable option for a lot of Mississippi schools. Uh, we've had a, we're have we having 11 hearings. You can see them scheduled on the Internet. And those hearings are where we're going, Karen. Uh, if we're having a hearing on it, it's because I, won't, I want to explore – making that particular issue better for mississippians so if you look at those hearings we started that before we ever adjourned we started that two or three weeks ago in the planning for it during the summer
0: lieutenant governor delbert hosman thank you so much for your time today
1: thank you karen it's good to talk to you have a great weekend
0: coming up a civil rights icon is celebrated on what would have been her 103rd birthday this is mississippi edition on mpb think Radio
3: mpbonline.org slash weather is here to keep you updated to stay safe as the only statewide radio and television broadcast network it is our mission that you are informed and prepared before severe weather hits mpbonline.org slash weather keeps you up to date with the latest weather news and safety tips from the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency and the National Weather Service to be informed before the storm visit mpbonline.org slash weather
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Today marks what would have been the 103rd birthday of civil rights icon Fannie Lou Hamer. Hamer is most notably known for her testimony at the 1964 National Democratic Party's convention on behalf of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. In commemoration of Hamer's life and legacy, an historic marker is being unveiled outside of the Sunflower County Courthouse. It is the product of months of planning by Mississippi Valley State University's public history students and their professor, Dr. C. Sade Turnipseed.
4: She was born on a plantation, and um, she's the youngest of 20 children. And the beautiful thing is that she did learn to read and write and became one of the supervisors, if you will, on the cotton plantation that she worked on. And in that ability, you know, in that she was somewhat literate and able to discern, uh, she then became an organizer very early. And so she um, she put together all kinds of wonderful programs that enabled other sharecroppers and other sharecropping families to come together and work collectively on their own. And she, of course, was a member of SNCC, who then lobbied and advocated for voters' rights throughout the Delta and ended up with the, the the great appeal during Democratic Conference in 1964, whereby President Johnson, too, took note of her and was then really nudged, if you will, into signing the 1965 Voting Rights Act. All
0: right, now I want to go back a little bit. So her voice for activism came as a result Of her representing sharecroppers, their interests?
4: Their interests, yes. And also she was more of the one who did the accounting of the cotton that was being picked. Um, So she had more of a managerial slash supervisory role, if you will, you know, when she became older. But of course, younger, she too was one who picked cotton alongside of her family of 20 children and two parents. How did she become one of the lead voices? She really moved to the forefront
0: of the civil rights movement, the fight for civil rights.
4: Yeah, well, again, she was the one who they isolated because of her powerful voice, because of her um, singing and galvanizing of people. She, She just stood out. And as a result, you know, she ran for... Um, the state representative in Congress in Mississippi. Uh, she did not win, but she had the vision and the foresight to know that she needed to be in the political seat in order to, you know, really advocate for change. And again, she was one of the co-founders of the uh, Freedom Democratic Party. Uh, is it the Democratic Freedom Party? I can't remember exactly which order it's in, but she was one of the co-founders of the party to advocate for change. And again, they were the ones who went to the Democratic Party uh, convention in Washington, D.C. in 1964. But I think all in all, it's something that was really innate in her. That's who she was. She was a leader. And it stood out and people noticed and, and then gall- rallied around her to support her vision for freedom. And justice.
0: The marker and so being unveiled today not only honors Fannie Lou Hamer, but the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which was 55 years ago. What would you like people most to remember or recognize about that about that act?
4: What I want people to really understand and recognize, especially since this is the year that everyone is saying that this is the most important election of our lifetime to understand that it was people like Fannie Lou Hamer who took the beating, the physical, literal, spiritual beating in order for us to all have full citizenship in this country. And that's the ability to vote. And and we really as a community, as a people, Um, as a nation, need to respect and honor the legacy of those who sacrificed their lives and who bled for us. And it just speaks to the importance, the real significance of voting, in that a woman like Fannie Lou Hamer, the youngest of 20 children, who grew up on a cotton plantation and then realized instinctively knowing that she is a full citizen, whether the laws and the policy or the, the standard quo acknowledges that or not, she knew who she was. And I think that's the most important thing for all of us to just not give up our rights to be that full citizen here in this country, and particularly here in Mississippi.
0: Tell us about the ceremony or the unveiling itself today and the details and how it came about. You had some students working on this.
4: Yes, I started a program at Mississippi Valley State University called the Public History uh, Class. And so we took on several projects, and this was one that we were able to complete in a semester. And uh, one student who is Brian Diallo, he's a 17 year old Nigerian who had this particular project and he scripted the text and the whole class was able to edit it and narrow it down to what we see today are, you know, on the marker. And so he will uh, unfortunately not be present because he's in North Carolina going to school virtually, but we do have the assistant, his assistant to the project and his name is Binga old show. And so he will be um, reading a statement from um, Brian. Uh, Brian's name is on the marker. And so one of the things that I just am so happy about is that in 20 years from now, Brian will be able to bring his children to Sunflower County Courthouse and say, see, this is the kind of work I did as a (laughs) student. He's got a (laughs) historical marker in place in front of the county courthouse where Fannie Lou. Hamer took her historic stance for the rights and full citizenship of us all. So I'm very proud of that. The event or the celebration or ceremony, uh, it will take place at one o'clock on the courthouse steps. Uh, We will be talking about the need to install more historic markers. And of course, you know that I'm heading up the effort to erect the Cotton Pickers of America monument that still needs to put in be put in place here in the Delta again to acknowledge the legacy and the contributions of the folks who made uh, the Delta the cotton kingdom of the world.
0: Dr. Cassie Sade Turnipseed is a former history professor at Mississippi Valley State University and now a history professor at Jackson State University. Thank you so much Dr. Turnipseed. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning.